This is Post Studio Visit, a podcast from the Or Gallery Vancouver. I'm Jonah Gray, the Or Gallery's curator of discursive projects. Every episode, I meet an artist, curator, or critic in the place where they work, and we talk about what they're currently up to. For today's episode, I was kindly hosted by Seattle artist Matt Browning. Browning studied fiber arts at the University of Washington. He has exhibited at the Fry Art Museum and Western Bridge and was included in the Artspeak group show Seurat and Friends in Vancouver in 2015. One of his latest undertakings will also have a home at Artspeak, a solo show by Lee Tennant that Browning co-curated in his capacity with the collective Tarl. The show opens June 4th, but our conversation focused mostly on the artworks that Matt had on his wall when I arrived at his studio. Once we sat down, I asked him what he'd been up to recently. The work that I'm working on right now that I'm feeling the most resolved with about are some pieces of knit felt that I've been producing um, out of a natural black lace <clears throat> lace weight Shetland yarn. Um, I'll knit small panels of cloth that have a surface pattern that is a sort of interweaving lattice that runs over the surface of the cloth. And when I felt the cloth and the stitches shrink down and all the fibers sort of interlock, a small trace of that knit pattern is uh, retained on the surface of the cloth. And so from a distance, because of the darkness of the fiber and because of the sort of diminutive scale, you don't really register that there's anything going on on the surface. And as you get closer, you can see that you know these works are indeed fibrous and dimensional off the wall slightly. And then as you approach even closer, there's this the pattern that sort of comes in and out of view um, and seems to be more perceivable the sort of less you look at it, the less you look for it. So um, I'm pretty excited about the way in which the pattern just sort of pulls in and out of focus, um, both depending on distance and attention or something, scrutiny. So, yeah. And, I mean, we're looking at, looking at a couple of them right now. They're, they're tiny. How big are they? Like four by five inches. And they shrink about 50% um, when you go through the process of felting. So Tell felting is a, like what is what, how does that work? <laughs> there are a few different ways to felt. Uh, I guess the three most common would be knit felting, needle felting, and uh, like loose fiber felting, mat, making a felted mat. And so all of them involve water, uh, some lubrication, agitation, uh, and heat. And so, except for needle felting, is often worked to dry and. Um, utilizes a sort of barbed needle. Basically, wool fibers, animal fibers in general, have um, barbs on the fibers as well. And through agitating the fibers next to other fibers, they will eventually kind of interlock to form a mat. And so this can happen simply by taking a bunch of loose wool and agitating it, and it will 
sort of form a, a cloth sheet that you can continue to agitate more wool and more wool on the perimeter and, and it will grow, you know, you can kind of grow it indefinitely. Um, so you can just literally take other pieces of wool, put them beside it and kind of like rub them together more or less? And it would, you would take other pieces. So if you were, if you're taking wool and you were agitating, say the central area of it and it were to form into felt and there were still a sort of like halo of looser fibers around the edge, you could ostensibly take more loose fibers and, and work them in. But you couldn't take two pieces of say, industrial-produced felt and just sort of rub the edges together and they would bond, that would never happen. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, you can add to it in a way that um, the cloth itself is not necessarily sort of, like, rectilinearly contained in the way that, say, like a, a piece of woven cloth might be. Um, needle felt is, again, it's produced through sort of, like, this puncturing of the, of the felt or of the uh, wool fibers with a, with a needle so that those wool fibers are, again, agitated into interlocking with one another. Um, it's a way of producing dimensional works. There's a Canadian artist, Louanne Martineau, who does, has done a lot of it historically that is very interesting work. Um, and then there's knit felting, which is a very... It's a sort of contained hobbyist mode of producing felt where rather than working with loose fiber, you're working with yarn, you're knitting to produce a shape or a form or a sheet of cloth that is absolutely bounded and contained by the knit diagram that you're working off of. Um, but then you can still apply that, um, that process of heat and agitation to further interlock the fibers. And so uh, the fibers are, I guess, interlocked once through the process of knitting, but then are like entangled through the process of felting. So there's this sort of interesting relationship where it's very much a structured cloth <clears throat> but there's this um, process of random, like chaotic agitation and entanglement that takes place after. Yeah. So, and that's part of what made me interested in knit felting in particular was um, the idea of like a, a grid structure or a, a really uh, systematic way of building uh, a piece of material or an object, then having this like momentary chaotic agitation as a sort of surface level treatment to it. Um, but a surface level treatment that still allowed that uh, underlying system to like uh, continue to present itself or, or um, so again like it was important to have the, the <clears throat> interlocking lattice pattern and it was important for that interlocking lattice pattern to, to show through slightly so that was why I chose to work with knitting instead of random fiber agitation felting and the nice thing about the Shetland yarn is that this natural black is just off of a true black. It's a very, very dark brown. And I have no empirical evidence to prove this, but there's something about the fiber being this incredibly dark brown through the whole fiber instead of dyed on the surface um, that makes it feel like it it contains more color or holds, and in the case of being a dark fiber, it, it holds more color. So as the works sit on the wall, um, again, from a distance, they really do function almost more like holes in the wall than they do as objects on the wall. Um, and my feeling is that that's partly attributable to the, the natural black and then also attributable to, again, that process of felting producing an intensely flat surface that, um, doesn't provide a lot of like a reflective surface for light to bounce off of, but yeah, only to yeah, only to absorb it. So, especially as like 
super black is becoming this very interesting, you know, like a uh, technological phenomenon that Kapoor is like gaining the rights to pr produce art through solely. Um, it's interesting to have a naturally occurring material that has like a very similar effect, albeit not as dramatic of one. So, yeah, I will just take a second to describe too. Like I said before that they're small, they're kind of, they're about, I guess, as you said, the size of what I think of as that sort of standard, you know, photo printout, um, kind of rectangles. And there are two of them that are sitting vertically side by side. And they have, just like you're saying, in the natural light in the studio here, they, yeah, do almost kind of look like kind of weird holes in the wall. And they, that halo that you described really, ha there's a soft edge that kind of makes it hard to actually focus on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that buzzing edge is, I think, well, it's perceptually interesting for me, but then I also think it... Um, it's just a sort of it's a sort of like visual exemplification of of what is structurally going on as well in the in the cloth right so um that buzzing vibrating edge is also buzzing and vibrating fiber in the center that you can't that you can't quite differentiate because of the fact that it's not because the center is obviously like this dark hole instead of um you know, bounded by the wall or articulated by by the by the edge being on the wall. So, I guess I like that. Um, I like that there is this sort of attraction to the edge, um, and then a definitively different thing going on visually in the center of the frame, so to speak. While at the same time, there's nothing materially different taking place on the edge or in the center or pattern or anything. So the difference in perception is obviously relational to your eye and the wall and distance more than to the material itself. There's something that's, um, that always stands out to me and maybe just in our conversations too about, about other projects is that the way that you have framed them or the way that, that that I, at least that I hear you thinking through them is in this profoundly kind of like structural kind of material level, right? That sounds, um, you know, I don't want to say like, um, well, in any case, that sounds like, that's like really about the kind of the way of making them and having to do with like the quality, sort of material qualities of them. But, on the flip side, that one of the most striking things about the works is this kind of, to me anyway, is like kind of an affective dimension or quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I... What gives? Like, what, <laughs> Do you think, of, I mean, you must be thinking about that because you're doing something that produces a particular um, visual effect that has like, that has kind of all of these then other kind of connotations potentially. Right. Um, I think that for a, f a few years now, um, I have been uh, interested in producing works that exist on the wall that are accessed through vision, but that immediately require you to reevaluate the extent to which vision is a successful means of like um, taking the work in. And so, and I think there's different ways to 
do that. Like I've made works that will literally collapse down into a smaller size or works that I'll present folded on the wall so that a lot of the visual field is obscured. Um, and then I guess the felting and this dark fiber is, is another way of thinking about producing a, a picture plane on the wall or an image on the wall that, um, again, all of its information is visually accessible and yet it sort of asks you to reconsider the extent to which that visual accessibility is going to like sort of satisfy your viewership experience. Um, so I was, yeah, I mean, I, I think about like Robert Morris's blind time drawings or, um, or some of his felt works and how looking at them elicits like the feeling of feeling around, you know, and, um, or the, or at least like, um, makes it, it sort of like, uh, awakens that, that possible sensation. And so of course, like felt has the great and very dumb pun of like, uh, nominally, nominally relating to feeling, you know, like, <laughs> um, but, but then it is also a material that like, uh, that I think, you know, like visually makes one think about that beyond its, its literal name. And so, um, yeah. And I think about, I think about how this pattern kind of comes in and out of focus. And I think about, again, the idea of like an image, um, an image being like a very small little, uh, like a very minor appearance of something that maybe ha uh, is is more significant in what doesn't appear, and so this is not it, something I have a great handle on right now. But uh, there's a art historian in Vancouver named Laura Marks who writes about aniconic images, he writes a lot about patterning in Islamic art, but also aniconic art to Marx's is um, basically imagery that the bulk of the imagery is contained outside of the image. So it's more significant what is not seen by the image than what is seen by the image. And so the idea of like depiction or representation or proper pictorial imaging, like is um, those types of modes of image production would not be an iconic. They would be your sort of like run of the mill way of um, depicting the world or representing an image of the world back to the world. Um, and I guess that I'm in general, I'm interested in, again, producing pictorial planes uh, that work on a, on a more aniconic level than on an iconic level. Yeah. So, and that I think has like, I guess like affective repercussions sort of <laughs> where, uh, you know, you're thinking about, you're thinking about these materials, you're thinking about handling them or wanting to handle them. You're thinking about the image or the lack of image or how the pattern might relate back to that materiality and back to some sort of other sensorial desire related to the process of viewing. And I don't know. I don't know if the conclusions one's, one draws, if one sort of goes through that, I guess, series of, of thoughts um, are effective or cognitive. But I think that at the very least, it hopefully makes one feel less certain about their ability to like sort of visually resolve 
but work through the process of inspection. So the end game is, like, is a bit about unsettling the viewer? Yeah, or, or at least just... Um, or at least just, like, uh, proposing that, that a close visual inspection and uh, will will not like sort of solve all of the solve all of the perceptual problems or, of a work, nor it w- nor is a close visual inspection perhaps the desired mode of perceiving a work either. And so, I guess in a lot of ways, I think about vision as a funny vehicle to thinking about not vision instead of vision begetting more vision or something. So. Um, and I guess in, in that way, like, I like that. <laughs> but I think in that way, like, uh, yeah, like folding something up so that there's something hidden behind a top layer or using a very dark fiber instead of a light fiber, thinking about darkness instead of lightness, um, are all ways of, of, of thinking about vision in that different way, right? Where it's, it's not about illuminating and, and receiving the truth or the answer or solving a puzzle, like, I think that there are certain works that I make that have like a certain puzzle aspect to them, but I, I don't ever want to present them as like a riddle to be solved by the viewer through inspection, you know? Um, and so it, it's much more about, uh, yeah, troubles with vision. Troubles with vision, and I think too, you know, in that, in your, your framing of it in regards to a process and a, a regards to um, a particular method, you know, this type of, the particular type of weaving that you're describing and the particular felting process. Does that extend for you? You know, I know it extends when you're talking about the type of wool and the color of the wool. What about like where the, where the wool comes from and where the, you know, I'm assuming that it does and that inflects your, your thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yes, material sourcing is often something that I think about to varying degrees. So the felt pieces, it just so happens that wool from the Shetland Islands has been more consistently bred to be this very black color. And also wool from the Shetland Islands and from Shetland sheep has a little bit of a finer hand to it. And so it just so happens that it makes like a very nice lace weight yarn. And I, because I wanted the pattern to be sort of fine in its appearance and, and to sort of recede into the, the, the felt ground, um, I felt it was important to work with a very thin yarn that felt it up to an overall thin fabric. So uh, the provenance, like the sort of specific story of the provenance is not important in this case more than it's just like, it just so happens that these sheep yeah. provided a material that whose function, whose like sort of visual functionality and material functionality was important to how I was thinking about the project. But it also seems relevant too, or I mean, you know, just when you bring up, for example, the Anish Kapoor super black, that it has this really particular kind of chemical and I'm assuming kind of like corporate and whatever kind of provenance that's about, you know, I don't know, chem, you know, chemical, chem, you know, chemical experimentation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, and I actually don't, you know, I'm again totally talking out of my ass here about like where it comes from, but I like just am immediately assuming that it has some, um, you know, militaristic kind of um, connotations as well in terms of whoever would have the, um, you know, who might have an interest in things in a certain type of like light, light absorption and that kind of thing. Right, right. You know, so then that just, I don't know. I'm just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the specific applications for super black as far as I understand it as well as military. Um, but it is like, it's a, a process. I don't know the extent to its sort of like chemical nature. It's a process of affixing carbon tubes to a, like a ground and the carbon tubes sort of, um, sit more or less vertically and so it's a a hairy surface sort of and and those carbon tubes are just incredibly light absorptive and so I think to me the thing that I find interesting is you're describing this right you're thinking about little tiny carbon nanotubes that are affixed to at least when I've seen it like in a a piece of aluminum foil or something and um, it's a very particular process and yet you're rendering like a very artificial and very specific form of like hair on the skin or something, right? Like it's not, and so again, like, yes, super black is a very tricky process that has a very particular result. Um, and yet the difference between it and something like the felt fibers sticking off of the hide of a sheet doesn't seem that different. And it's interesting that like, a, at least a, a similar effect can be reached through <laughs> like buying this incredibly ubiquitous material online and not copywriting anything you know so I guess in that way that that's also um, something that I take or I, that I take interest in and take somewhat seriously is producing works that have like a um, an ability to be replicated <laughs> very easily by me or anyone else if someone would want to like there's uh, there's very little effort on my part to sort of claim proprietorship over any of my processes or uh, or forms so but going back to material selection I'm, there are other projects that are more specific I, the project that I was working on prior to the felt was a series of weavings um, where I was selecting the yarn from baseballs and um, it was a material that I'd used a number of years ago and was kind of looking for an excuse to use again. Yeah. Um, And I had been making some carvings prior to making these weavings. I, a friend was visiting with me and the carvings have a very like overt formal relationship to Solowit and the end of our meeting, this friend joked that Solowitz's work was all about baseball, um, which is not entirely true, but is like oddly true. He ref- he uses baseball metaphors in his paragraphs on conceptual art, um, and he also like has this incredibly bizarre internal system that he's gone about producing his work through, or, or went about producing his work through, and so. Um, I started kind of ruminating on that and thinking about how when 
like batters step up to home plate that they go through all these sort of gyrations and they'll like adjust their helmet and they'll adjust their batting gloves and they'll do some, and they'll all kind of crouch into their own very unique self-determined stance and then as the pitch approaches the plate there's a moment where the pitch is like maybe a third of the way to home plate where if you look at every single batter in the major leagues they've all like risen out of their weird little contorted stance into this incredibly standardized stance and so um the idea that there's this like there's this push and pull in, in baseball and maybe in maybe in all sports but in, i think in baseball in particular where there's a lot of these sort of internal head games taking place constantly and then there's also like um the pro the, the practice of like being a good athlete and like being a successful hitter and so those two things are kind of like not always um mutually reinforcing each other or aiding each other instead i think a lot of times like a baseball player's head gets in the way of his effectiveness as a baseball hitter and so um so the sort of internality of 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 someone like a baseball player and the internality of someone like Lewitt and his systems seemed interesting to me um and i had and the and the carvings that i'd been producing had this sort of foldable quality i'd already been thinking about them as weavings and so it made sense to revisit weaving for me and i guess an additional visual wrinkle is that the yarn inside baseballs is this sort of neutral gray with these little tiny flecks of color and the um it's wool yeah so rawlings which has been the baseball producer for the major league since the 70s um they work with a mill in the northeast of the united states and it's a mill that produces a lot of textiles for lands end and ll bean and the sort of like um i guess middle of the road like consumer fashion brands of america um and and all that rawlings cares about is that there is a certain wool content to the yarn that this mill produces and so the and the reason for this is wool has this natural spring property it's also part of what makes it felt um but it uh and so when wound very tightly around a cork core and then sheathed in leather in to form a baseball it, it has a fair amount of bounce to it for a period of time and so um and baseball's a nostalgic game so i think they settled on a certain material construction and they want to stick with it so this is how they've made it but the thing that's interesting is that this yarn is produced like for that function alone it's covered in leather and it's never like ostensibly never meant to be seen um and yet it contains like all of these flecks of royal blue and red and fuchsia and chartreuse and baby blue and that's actually really beautiful right and it's all of these colors that like we've come to sort of recognize as the colors of ll bean or the colors <laughs> of lands end or the colors of like a certain type of windbreaker that is persistently popular you know in america or whatever is the relationship so close that it's literally that they're kind of like off you know ends of of the same fabrics that are being used that's my that's my theory so i've i've looked into it a bit and um yeah the, it it seems as though the way the the mill works is that it's basically their scraps they get gathered into a big heap and they get carded and the process of carding will kind of neutralize the fibers into more or less a gray ground um but that there are i guess persistent chunks of different colors that will kind of poke their way through. And so 
I guess, interestingly, um, the heap of fiber that is being staged in order to produce the yarn that goes into these baseballs looks like eerily similar to some, someone like Robert Morris's thread waste works, which were these, you know, like piles of random wool fibers strewn about on the, um, on the floor with those, with his mirrored cubes stuck in them. And, um, and it's interesting too, because for Morris, he happened across that material, um, in some other, uh, like sort of realm of his life that was also a realm of pure functionality where he was working at a rail yard in his twenties and the time boxcars had a sort of through axle for their wheels that had a bearing surface on the exterior of the axle and there were lubricating boxes that would sit around that exterior bearing surface and those lubricating boxes would be packed with this thread waste that had been soaked in oil. And in the wintertime, according to Morris, that oil-soaked fiber would be removed from those bearing boxes and then brought into break rooms and burned to keep warm. And so there was this like intensely interesting um, like reclaiming of one functional material put to use to another function, both of which were intensely sort of like um, haptic, right? Like lubrication and then warmth. And then Morris pulls that material out of that environment, um, pulls it out of both of those types of functions that were totally unrelated to sight and then like sort of um, presents it as a thing to be looked at, but of course also to be moved around because of the sort of scale of the installations. And so his decision-making process and the way that he went about, um, I guess like uh, toying with the functionality of this material was interesting to me too in the way that I was choosing, selecting the baseball uh, wool and then, and then choosing to render more or less like a, a color field by, by weaving it into these tapestry forms. So. And the ones we're looking at on your wall here are, are kind of folded up in a, I can't tell, it's not, it's not like a signature, but it's a, I just think of that in terms of <laughs> folding paper, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the work, is it one? Is it one long sheet that's that's folded up, or it's is it a... four pieces? And so it is, and it, and I think of it, even though it's so, it's four pieces that have been f each folded individually and then stacked on the wall. And it um, looks like it's pretty close to like a four or eight and a half by eleven kind of. Yeah, it's slightly piece. larger, but more or less. Um, so as I produce them, I first produce them just thinking, well, I have four works that will exist on the wall as, as four kind of individual planes. Um, but I was already quartering them and folding them, and I was already rendering so much of that visual field kind of um, invisible through that process. I started experimenting with actually just taking the works and also stacking them on top of each other in addition to folding them. And so I guess <laughs> it just reduces the level of visual access that much more. Um, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a ton of cloth, but it's, you know, those pieces unfolded are approximately two by three feet. And so you quarter them and then you stack them. And ultimately what you're left to look at is something that's about 12 by 14 inches. And so, um, there's nothing interesting going on beneath that top 12 by 14 inches or nothing different, I guess. And yet 
there because you notice those little flecks of color or like a little piece of silver lame that kind of like inexplicably makes its way into that pile of of wool um there's i guess one begins to sort of wonder what other minor flecks might be beneath those folds what other if there is anything of note <laughs> um and and i i like i like that i also like playing up the fact that cloth is flexible. And um, I think a lot of what has made me interested in that is uh, another art historian in Vancouver, Ty Smith's writings on the sort of structural metaphors of cloth. And um, she thinks about the the grid as indicative of sort of the... uh, cloth's fordist elements, uh, cloth's like sort of infrastructural, uh, early industrial assembly mi- line modes of production, uh, and that the the grid of the weaving diagram, or the grid of two of a warp and weft intersecting, or even the grid that it, say a knitting is built out of, um, all harken back to that sort of early statecraft of of industrial production and that cloth's flexibility is more indicative of the sort of post-fortist precarious moment that we find ourselves in on a subjective level. And so um, so I think that uh, having cloth that's literally folded, like either folded as a means of being receded or folded as a means of sort of like waiting, I think, is, is interesting to me. Um, waiting like W-A-I-T or W-E-I-G-H? Uh, W-A-I-T, like waiting to work or something. Like I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of works that I've made over the last few years that have like a, what I would call like a sleep mode or like a resting mode where <laughs> like, uh, yeah, and it's, but yeah, like sleep mode in the technological sense instead of in the human sense where there's this sort of like, they're totally there and they're ready to be back on it's very shortly, but there's a way that they can kind of collapse in on themselves and and like wait for that next moment. Um, which on one hand I think is just, that's the reality for all of us. Um, but then on the other hand, it's also like an incredibly, uh, like, I guess fair treatment of my limited storage space. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I mean, it's I would, awfully convenient. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, and that's like, that's honestly part of what I had in mind when I would produce works that way is like, gosh, isn't it nice to use materials that, that you can kind of chuck around and they aren't going to break and you can fold them up and you can stick them somewhere. And, um, yeah, again, the whole thing is sort of very unprecious that way. So, yeah. What about these guys over here on the, on the wall, the little, they're, I feel like, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of doing an an audio interview and talking about artworks is that is never going to, you're never going to get it anyways, but I'm gonna try. They're they're small. They're about the size of like milk bottle caps, and they're they look like sort of spirals. And there are four of them, spaced about, I want to say like just under two feet apart. Mm-hmm. Um, they are studies. They are not a work yet, and I'm getting very conflicting feedback on them from friends. And so I, um, I'll explain what I was thinking about, but I, I don't know that they will. (laughs) What the process is or what the, yeah. So 
I should say about the carvings that I've sort of hinted at earlier, um, the ones that were sort of Lewidian in their form, um, they employ a certain type of carving method that is often referred to as like whittled whimsies. Um, so balls uh, inside of cages or chain links carved out of a single block of wood, sort of, again, sort of like trick, like whittling tricks that were often performed by migrant farm workers during the 1930s as they rode trains to look for work. And so, um, so hobos is, an, is a name that is the contraction of the term ho-boy, which was what migrant farm workers were referred to starting in the late 19th century and became a very popular thing to refer to workers as in the 30s in the U.S. because of the Great Depression, because of how many people were actually doing this thing. So hobos are riding their trains around, looking for work, they are producing a commodity, like albeit a very diminutive one, in the form of these like little balls and cages and chain links, um, mostly out of their own, I think for their own amusement more than anything, because they're killing time on the train. Um, but it also represents like a an unusual mode of production, an unusual like uh, circumstance that a that a working body, like a, pro a properly functional working body, finds themselves in, where for whatever economic reasons, mm, the types of labor that the economy would normally require out of these bodies is rendered somewhat like valueless. And so they're casting about and they're doing other things and then they're trying to like assign or not assign value to those other activities. And so when migrant workers would land somewhere and look for work, and if they were unable to find it, they would often trade these little carvings for like a meal. And so again, like an incredibly sort of reduced exchange value for what may have been several hours or even a whole day of labor, in quotes. I don't know. I don't know if it's actually labor, but it's an activity. So at any rate, the pieces on the right, the milk bottle cap-sized circle spirals, are embroideries. Um, they're utilizing a stitch called the bullion stitch, which, again, in the way that I guess felt has a sort of punny relation to what I want it to be, what I want the felt works to be about. I think the bullion stitch does as well. It's, there's a, like a sort of nominal relation to value in the name of the stitch. The circle form reinforces that. The scale reinforces that. The material does to a certain degree. These are all different types of silk. Um, they're stitched into a cotton ground that is then sort of tucked behind them and, and, and stitched away so that Really, all you see is the silk embroidery without any cotton backing cloth. Um, but as I was looking more into the bullion stitch and into its, I guess, historical use in embroidery, I came across a, an interesting instance where um, basically, I think in both world wars, soldiers who were injured recovering in hospital from like a, like a war-inflicted wound um, would often produce these little war patches called bullion patches. And so they wouldn't always utilize this stitch. Sometimes they would utilize uh, like, a, like a, a gold rope that they, would, that they would hand stitch down. But oftentimes they would be using this particular stitch, which I'll describe as a kind of barrel stitch or a barrel knot that is stitched onto the surface of the cloth. So... If there are any embroiderers listening to this 
podcast than um, of which there are many. Yeah, okay. Uh, a fr- That's our main demographic. <laughs> a French knot is uh, a single knot that sits on the surface of a cloth, and so you would bring your needle up, you would basically tie a knot, and then send your needle back down. And the visual um, feature of that um, of that particular stitch is this kind of like fluffy knot sitting on the surface. Bullion stitch is a, an elongated French knot. So rather than tying a single like overhand knot or whatever uh, and then sending your, your thread back down, uh, you're wrapping multiple times and producing this barrel knot that then sits on top of the surface. And so it's a relatively labor-intensive stitch. It renders this kind of grub or rope-like form on the surface of the cloth that I think is, is played up by producing these sort of spiral forms. So it looks like a coil of rope or something. Um, circular, circular ropes were also a very common uh, like visual trope within actual theater-made bullion patches, which are the bullion patches that were made by injured soldiers in theater, so in the country of conflict. Um, and so I guess in a lot of ways, like the, like the hobos having these sort of working bodies that were rendered temporarily valueless or non-functional because of a certain because of certain economic conditions so soldiers that are injured have these like you know these working bodies that are that are rendered temporarily non-functional and rather than thinking about the things that they choose to do with their time as embodying like an intense amount of value as a commodity i, th- I think i'm becoming more interested in like in the sort of distracted activities of production that take place in these, and when one finds themselves in these sort of existential zones. So um, while the theater-made bullion patches represent a degree of craftsmanship and they have an aesthetic quality, why, while the ball and cages or whittled chain links have an aesthetic quality and like have a, a growing collector's market, they're also produced under like a certain, like a under incredibly limited like sort of material and technological constraints like they don't take a lot of money in materials or a lot of tools or even a lot of like technical knowledge to produce um they can be produced while something else is happening like the process of recovering from a wound or like sitting in bed or the process of like lounging on a train and so there's a sort of leisurely mode of production or like a distracted mode of production that i think is very interesting um and i've been really into and reading a lot of um, John Roberts and Dave Beach's writings on the Philistine and the Philistine being a sort of conceptual category produced by the aesthetic elite or the art elite as a sort of like boogeyman to art. And, um, and that the Philistine is actually not like a, like a, a bundle of tastes more than it is like a conceptual bundle of modes of attention that art devalues. And so again, like, Art values a certain level of like really intense looking, you know, and like paying attention, you know? and like Bruce Nauman wants us to pay attention, wanted us to pay attention, <laughs> you know, and like, um, and that that's like been this re- very con- persistent aspect of being an art, a, a good art viewer, you know, um, and that can that can also like sort of leak into the the modes of production that are valorized through art, um, and so. Uh, either perhaps you valorize your your practice through like a certain attentive mode of material production or a certain cognitive production that shows that you're being very attentive to the sort of like concerns of the day 
but, it, but attention always seems to be one of the main pivot points about whether or not one's practice or mode of viewing is legitimated within an artistic discourse, an art discourse. And so I guess what makes me so interested in something like a whittled whimsy or a theater-made bullion patch or knitting a small piece of cloth, like a, a sampler size that you then felt, um, is that they're these incredibly portable modes of production that again are like very distracted and can take place alongside other occurrences in one's life and and that also hopefully the resulting forms don't demand that level of sort of like attention on the part of the spectator or of the viewer that that maybe like we have become mannered to expect ourselves to to sort of perform in the process of viewing a work and so that being said, I think that there's like things to be gained by looking at my work closely, but I also don't think that that's the only mode of viewership that I take seriously. And in fact, I take it less seriously than a sort of like passing glance. Or again, um, when looking at something like the felt, the fact that like the pattern comes in and out of focus, and that like no level of close inspection will necessarily like solve that problem for you as a viewer. And so, why not just? give up the idea that like <laughs> that like looking at something really closely is going to reward you, you know? And so um so I, I guess in a lot of ways like I'm I'm trying to kind of totally to to play with that idea with those modes of attention on on a total level. Like both in both in the ways that I go about producing a thing, both in and in my like sort of source material, like formal and materials source material and um and then also in like the resulting forms that I present as 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 a work to be viewed. Thanks for tuning in. As always, if you want to suggest someone for me to interview or you have any questions for me to ask, please get a hold of me on Twitter. I'm at Jonah underscore Gray, and the gallery is at Or Gallery. Or email me at discursive at orgallery.org.